The scripture lesson today is taken first from Mark 15, chapters 20, chapter 15, verses 21 to 24, which is one scene in the final moments of the life of Christ. They compelled a passerby who was coming in from the country to carry his cross. It was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Then they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his clothes among them, casting lots to decide what each should take. Then one sentence from a series of farewells that the Apostle Paul gives at the conclusion of the letter to the Romans, Romans 16, 13. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and greet his mother, a mother to me also. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. May whoever reads the story of ordinary people in Scripture be led to contemplate from what depths we must cry out to you. And thus, may we so be led to cry out. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So in the final sermon I'm preaching in this summer series on ordinary but obscure characters in the Bible, we turn to the most obscure character of all, the mother of Rufus. Here is what we know about her from the text of Scripture. In the final chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans, which contains the longest farewell in the New Testament, Paul lists 29 people who have been involved in the church at Rome. We did not read all of them, but they appear in chapter 16. Paul expresses affection for each of these 29, gratitude for their friendship, their faith, their role in the church. Paul refers to 27 of these 29 by name, yet two are not named the sister of Nereus, and the mother of Rufus. Of the latter, Paul writes, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and greet his mother, a mother to me also. What this reference reveals to us is this. In the church at Rome, there was a man named Rufus, Paul believed that Rufus Rufus was chosen in the Lord. Rufus' mother was also a part of the church. And she had in some way served as a maternal presence in Paul's life. A mother to me also. From this set of knowns, I want us to branch out into other references of the New Testament concerning the family of Rufus and his mother. And then I want us to turn to what Rufus' mother may have meant to Paul. So when we do detective work around the family of Rufus and his mother, we begin to encounter a tragic division 
that appears to have arisen within the family. While the mother of Rufus appears nowhere else in Scripture, Rufus is mentioned at one other place. If you will recall, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when Jesus is sentenced to death, Roman soldiers lead him outside of Jerusalem to be crucified. It was the custom of the day for the condemned criminal to carry across his shoulders the crossbar of the cross on which he would soon be crucified. Likely, because Jesus was so weakened by the torture that he had already endured, he is unable to carry the crossbar. A man named Simon of Cyrene is coming into Jerusalem from the countryside. The soldiers compel him to carry the crossbar in Jesus' stead. And Simon obeys their order. While Matthew, Mark, and Luke all incorporate this detail into their gospel, when Mark mentions Simon of Cyrene, he adds, the father of Alexander and Rufus. If this is the same Rufus whose mother appears at the end of Paul's letter, then the mother of Rufus was married to the man compelled by Roman soldiers to carry the cross of Christ at the crucifixion. Now, it is entirely possible that like the centurion on the cross we saw three Sundays ago, Simon of Cyrene becomes a follower of Christ, indeed converts to Christianity through this small part that he plays in Christ's death. On the other hand, It is possible that Simon, like the other Roman soldiers involved, is more a servant of the crucifixion than someone converted by it. His carrying the cross may simply be an act of obedience to soldiers in what is essentially a police state. For Simon, the crucifixion of Christ may have been no more significant than the dozens of other public crucifixions he would have witnessed as a resident of Jerusalem in that day and time. In any event, in the 20 or more years between the death of Christ and the writing of Paul's letter to the Romans, it appears that both the wife of Simon and their son Rufus have become significant followers of Christ and active participants in early Christianity through the Apostle Paul. But what about the other son, Alexander? Unlike Rufus or his mother, a person named Alexander is mentioned four other times in the New Testament, but in at least three of these, Alexander is depicted as either critical of Paul, opposed to Paul's message or even trying to undermine Paul. Now, so far in this sermon, there's been a lot of forensic investigation, CSI Westminster. (laughs) But a possibility that emerges from all this investigation is this. 
at some point after Simon of Cyrene carried the crossbar of Christ to the place Christ was to be crucified, his wife became a follower of Christ, active with and assuming a leadership role alongside Paul. His son Rufus likewise became a follower of Christ, also active with Paul. But his other son, Alexander, became an active opponent of the Christian faith and tried to stamp it out. At best, Simon's role is unclear, but it too leads in the direction of being opposed to the faith. The bottom line is that clearly within the realm of possibility, it is within the realm of possibility that four members of this family are deeply divided. Rufus and his mother, devoted followers of Christ, active in the early church, Simon and Alexander, opponents. It is possible that this is a family in which members are pitted against one another, living in their own moral, cultural, and religious universes. Christian versus pagan, kingdom of Christ versus kingdom of Caesar, Rome and Athens versus Jerusalem. Paul thanks Rufus and his mother, but makes no mention of Alexander or Simon. This is a family deeply divided. Does that sound at all familiar? In our nation, we are almost through the 50 years acknowledgement of the summer of 1968. Those of us who were alive then and are alive now have likely entertained the question in recent years whether or not we are as divided as a nation today as we were in that summer. Those were divided times with cities burning, campuses shut down, assassinations, riots. The effect of those national divisions in those days was intense within families. College students, if they came home from the holidays, often hurled invective over turkey and dressing, and invective was returned by angry and defensive parents. A pastor I know who served near one of the military bases in Virginia told me of a funeral he conducted in which a military spouse refused the flag, offered her a graveside out of her opposition to the war in which her husband had died. Parents were divided against children. Sibling against sibling, husbands against wives and wives against husband over fundamental issues of war and peace, sexuality, the role of the family and men and women within it, the meaning of patriotism, the existence and presence of God, whether or not God was worthy of belief. 
Whether our country is more or less divided now is in some sense an academic question. For we are divided enough to know that many families, nuclear or extended, can barely speak to one another about certain topics. Many households, many family, even even many marriages know what it's like to have Alexander and Simon on one side, Rufus and his mother on the other. When I am moved by the imaginative reconstruction of the family of Simon, his wife, their sons, Rufus and Alexander, is this. In biblical times, people were were often, like us, divided from those they loved over fundamental issues of faith and moral belief. We are not the first generation to struggle with those with whom we love over significant matters in which differences appear to be barely reconcilable, if reconcilable at all. Even Jesus himself once said, Do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and one one's foes will be members of one's own household. Perhaps this memory came to the mother of Rufus when alone in her bed one night she realizes the cost she has paid and the losses she has experienced because she decided to follow the one whose cross her husband had carried. This reconstruction does not prescribe what we are to do when we are in a family divided over fundamental issues of faith and moral belief. Each family, every individual, has to navigate these differences to the best of their abilities and has to be cognizant of the situation at hand. But this reconstruction can remind us that in a fallen and divided world where even Adam and Eve early on experienced rift and mutual finger pointing, the fact that our faith and its scriptures acknowledge our propensity for division is something that can be reassuring. It can be helpful. It can even be healing. It's not as if God is not used to seeing His creation and creatures in conflict. God does not avert His eyes when we sit across the table from those we love with arms folded across our chests. It can be a source of comfort and a perspective for us and perhaps even the beginning of reconciliation to know that God sees our differences and that Scripture acknowledges them. Now this division within the family of Rufus and his mother exposes a tragic dimension. But there is a beautiful aspect that comes out of this story as well, particularly for the mother of Rufus. 
we encounter this beauty in the words of Paul's farewell, greet Rufus's mother, a mother to me also. We know very little about the Apostle Paul's family life. We know that as a young man, he was Jewish, highly educated by one of the reading rabbis of his day, and a precocious leader within the Jewish community well before his chronological years. Given the importance of family within Judaism, it is fair to deduce that that Paul's family of origin was strong, faithful, and observant. But the vision of the risen Christ that Paul encountered on the road to Damascus had turned him from someone who tried to squelch the reform movement Jesus had led within Judaism into one who took the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection from its base in Judaism into the Greco-Roman world. More than any single human being, Paul is responsible for Christianity becoming a world religion rather than a small sect within Judaism. Had Paul not been successful, we would not be sitting in a Christian sanctuary today. But in all of his writings, Paul never mentions the family from which he came and likely left behind. Mother, father, siblings, perhaps even spouse, no mention. But near the end of his life, in the last chapter of his letter to the Romans, when Paul gives thanks for the contributions of 29 people to the work of the early church and the expansion of Christianity, which was the work of his life, among those he thanks is the mother of Rufus. And then he adds, she was a mother to me. Also, in the mother of Rufus, Paul had a surrogate mother, a metaphorical mother, a spiritual mother, a mother in the faith, a mother to me also, he said. Throughout my life, I have had mentors and teachers and people that I've looked up to. Some women, some men. Mostly, but not all positive. I'm not sure I would go so far as to say that any one person has been a father in the faith or a mother in the faith to me. Or simply a metaphorical father or mother in life for that matter. But I have seen such relationships in the church and outside the church. Relationships which are so healthy and in which people are so close that they describe the other as father or mother or sister or brother or child. The Bible itself is replete with such relationships. Eli and Samuel, Jonathan and David, Elijah and Elisha, Elizabeth and Mary, Paul and Onesimus, Jesus and the beloved disciple. When these relationships form, when they happen, they are beautiful. They are lovely. 
They are life-giving. And they are gifts from God. If Rufus was chosen in the Lord, as Paul says, then I believe the mother of Rufus was chosen in the Lord to be a maternal presence in Paul's life. If you currently have such a relationship, if you have had one, or if you think you may be on the verge of one with someone in this church or outside this church, I encourage you to give thanks for what you have or for what you have had. And do not hold back on what might develop, at least until you're given a reason to hold back. The relationship that Paul had with the mother of Rufus may just have taken some of the edge off of his propensity for anger and volatility. It may have given him a greater understanding about the role that women could play in the life of the church. It may have given him insight which helped him become the leader that he became. But most of all, the mother of Rufus may have filled a hole undoubtedly left in his heart when his decision to follow Christ left behind the family in which he was nurtured. Amen.